Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Jason Becker was beginning to feel the effects of the disease. However, I urge all human beings to listen to the song Showtime. And just keep in mind, this man is at the beginning of ALS when he played that. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns, but I'm sorry Tammy isn't with us today. If you're a fan of the show, then you know that means we got a guest, and we do. This week, it's Darren Paltrowitz talking about his new work, DLR Book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. Now, look, you know if you're a listener to the show, I am a huge Van Halen fan, so... I chewed through this book and truly enjoyed it. And if you're someone who loves the band or knows someone who loves Van Halen, this this would be a great gift you could give to them. So, for an hour today, Darren Paltrowitz talking about his work, DLR Book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World. On Rock School. On the phone with me, Darren Paltrowitz, the author of the DLR book. And uh, look, I'm just going to get straight to the point here, Darren. There is no human being on this earth that is a greater Van Halen fan than me. So if you're going to be on this show, you're going to have to explain yourself, young man. Tell me about your relationship with the band. Well, can we start with compliments here, or is this just a one sided compliment? No, absolutely. Go ahead. What you and Tammy do, excellent stuff there. It's really great when you have people who approach interviews and podcasts who know what they're talking about, who do their homework, et cetera. So, you know, thank you for fighting the good fight, and thank you for having me on. Now, well, I was, no, hold on. You can do more of that. Van ha- no, oh, you can do ahead, more Joe. of that if you want. Okay, now tell us about Van Halen. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm like most people around my age where their first exposure to Van Halen was the radio and MTV. Uh, due to my age, I came on board with the 1984 era and uh, plowed ahead through there you know i i did not fall in love with van halen one because i was not alive yet when it came out i hate to bum me out right there but uh it's a long-term fandom kind of thing there's very few bands that when you love them when you're you know 9 10 11 years old that you still love them as an adult that it's not embarrassing that you go oh why did i listen to that and van halen is one of those groups Absolutely. Now, let me just start banging away at the book here. It it is a common theory through the book. I see it again and again and again that no matter who you spoke to, and by the way, there's got to be a hundred interviews in this book, but 
no matter who you speak to, one of the things they say about David Lee Roth is a tremendous intelligence. Now, you've interviewed him. Did you get that? In 2003, just that's our one indirect interaction. Huge intelligence, also hyperactivity, but the kind of person that's book smart, a great orator, but also very aware of what's going on in pop culture, the smartest stuff and the dumbest stuff at the same time. Has that been his downfall as much as his success? The fact that he's so smart? Yes. No. I, honestly, I attribute it to him not having the proper sounding board or collaborator. There's been periods of Dave's career where he didn't have a manager that he was listening to or didn't have an Eddie Van Halen or Steve I type collaborator that he trusted. And in my opinion, that's been when he's been at his weakest commercially and critically. Well, when you look at that, it's much the same as many bands. Uh, Aerosmith comes to mind and others where you have two tip tops. Eddie could not be defeated on the guitar. Dave could not be defeated on the stage. And yeah. although Eddie was a great sounding board, don't get me wrong, the band had no choice but to blow itself apart. Am I right about that? Yes, I, I think you're right on that end. And, you know, to, to jump ahead a tiny bit, when Dave had Steve I as basically his equal, tip-top, absolute tip-top, but when he didn't have that equal-footing guitar player, at least in terms of the songs being co-written with them, them being in the room, them doing media together, that's that's when the, uh, the Emperor's clothing situation shows itself. Hmm. You mentioned Jim Dandy, and I, I don't want to yes. stay. I don't want to stay with Van Halen and previous a lot because you really do hit the the David Lee Roth timeline, and I want to get into a lot of that because one of the things I'm interested in is where did it start to go south? Because this idea of David Lee Roth right after the breakup of Van Halen, there was no question he was top of the heap. And then yes. there was this a star is born, one down, one up. And I do want to get into that, but let me ask you, is David Lee Roth simply a clone of Jim Dandy, which I have heard <laughs> as a beat against him a lot? Yeah, Dave Mustaine said that to me in the book. But then again, Dave Mustaine is not known to be the happiest camper no. on earth. He's not <laughs> known to be a huge Van Halen fan in general. I think it's a common utterance you hear, oh, Dave stole from Jim Dandy. And there might be partial truth in that. There's different stories about Dave videotaping a Jim Dandy performance and that kind of stuff. But no, I think that... Who Diamond Dave is is a hybrid or a combination of so many different influences and so many different people with some originality in there. Dave is not a metal guy, never was. He's not a hard rock guy. When he talks about his influences, he talks about soul, R&B, vaudeville, dance, in, in general, danceability is what he kind of brought to Van Halen. Without Dave 
Van Halen would have been Black Sabbath light, <laughs> Black Sabbath clony kind of stuff, six to 12 minute songs. Dave brought the commercial nature. He brought the choreography through allegedly his dad hiring a Motown choreographer for Van Halen to get some moves from. Dave supposedly is who would give the danceability test when they were a cover band to go, is this danceable enough? You know, being mindful of the fact that if the women in the relationship aren't wanting to go or if the girls are not coming out, your band is dead in the water in, in L.A. on the Sunset Strip. So I don't think of Jim Dandy as this dance-oriented artist as upbeat and happy as he was. Maybe he said, okay, um, the, the blonde hair, the shirtless look with the tight pants, the white pants that he had on, on some of the tours in the early 80s. Sure, but that would not be, you know, 50% of the picture or 20% of the picture. I would say 5 to 10% of the picture. Why? Well, let me roll up onto the sidewalk and take a look. Yes. Whoa. She's beautiful. I'm talking about a Yankee Rose. You wrote in your book, I'm just going to quote you, that he, quote, got himself kicked out of Van Halen. Nobody knows the, the the answer. I've yelled at other authors. Come on, write the book. How did the band die? Is yeah. that your idea? David Lee Roth wanted gone, so he kicked himself out? I think he was kicked out, whether he did it or the band did it. You could really prove it by the way that Van Halen addressed it. But one of the things I talk about in the book is how the point of contention publicly that Van Halen gave was about how Dave wanted to be a movie star. That's the quote from Eddie and how dare he, you know, ask me to score his film like I'm going to be a second fiddle. And so Dave around that time also did the crazy from the heat EP. So a lot of people spin it to go Dave and his ego problem because he wasn't committing to Van Halen. But that's about 2% of the picture. If, if you want to keep using numbers here, I know I'm the one who keeps throwing percentages because you go before Dave did the crazy from the heat EP, he was on that Nicolette Larson album as a favorite of Ted Templeman of sorts. He did the Brian May Starfleet album he scored the the movie The Wildlife, which was kind of a fa Fast Times at Ridgemont High unofficial sequel. I believe around then he'd scored that movie for Valerie Bernelli that was a TV film called The Seduction of Gina. And also he was on this, this little independent album called Thriller by Michael Jackson playing on Beat It. Oh, that. So in other words, Eddie could do any of that and also not tell the band. The, the story that Dave tells is that Dave was pulling up to a 7-Eleven or something like that and heard blaring out of a stereo somebody doing all of Eddie's guitar tricks, and he had, that was his time hearing beat it. So in other words, Eddie could do all those things, but the second that Dave wants to do one separate thing, he's being disloyal. So I say all that, plus um, there is a confidential memo that's been floating around for decades 
that I don't want to say too much, but it's basically a concert event that Dave was pitching in that era involving Van Halen. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I don't think that Dave was going, hey, I'm I'm quitting, I'm gone, you guys. I think that his actions were perceived as that he wanted gone and that he was going solo, but not that he planned on ever quitting. I think he planned on just being gone for a year or two or three while he was doing his movies, uh, movie kind of thing and getting it all out of his system. And then he was going to come back and Van Halen was going to be bigger than ever in his mind. Uh, You know, I agree. I I could not agree more if I had to. The hypocrisy of Eddie Van Halen saying... uh, putting together a band and playing with Vi and Bissonette and, 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 and setting this whole thing up. I, I have often wondered, had the band simply stated out front, and Eddie could have done this, go ahead, go do your solo stuff. We'll see in two years. Because after 1984, any, even if Warner Brothers dropped them for not creating an album, any record company would have wanted the four of them back together. And yes. I, I really think that would have kept the band going. But, you know, it's so it's so cliche to say drugs got in the way. But I think it was a lot of egos. Dave wanted to stay. I really believe that. It was the Van Halen brothers. When you weren't kowtowing, you were in trouble. And uh, with all the projects that I named, I also forgot to name that Eddie played on that Dweezil Zappa single as a teenager. Sure. My mother is a space cadet. Exactly. You know your stuff. So he gets to do all that and, by the way, build his own studio, the 5150, which I don't think he was going, hey, Dave, so I'm going to do this. You know, that was kind of a striking out against Ted Templeman, who was a company guy. I'm not saying anything bad about Ted Templeman, but supposedly 1984 taking as long as it did was a statement against how much of a rush job Diver Down was, where Eddie said, I never want to be under that kind of pressure again. So Eddie can play on whatever he wants. He could build his own studio. The studio's going to be at his house. And, you know, so Dave goes, okay, so I want to do this thing for my Creative Jones and this thing for my Creative Jones, paired with the fact that Dave was not tied down to a girlfriend or wife or partner. He didn't have obligations along those lines. And that's why whenever Van Halen's off tour, supposedly, he was doing all of his adventure kind of things. Hence the story about the Us Festival, you know, the telegram going to the remote jungles to to, hey, come back here. So Dave, for better and for worse, always wants to be creating or doing something. And the rest of Van Halen kind of wanted to take it slow after having their most successful tour and album. So that's why I kind of go, I think that Dave was kicked to the curb and he did not plan on being out of Van Halen forever. I got to be honest with you. The original David Lee Roth solo album, Eat Him and Smile, and I know it wasn't a dig at Van Halen. So many people do that. It was, I think it was an orange crate he saw it on. I think it's a watermelon crate. Was it watermelon? (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was just everything Van Halen should have been at that point in time, but they refused to do it. Am I wrong or right about that? 
I love Edom and Smile. You're not going to get me to say bad stuff about Edom and Smile. I like it more than I do 5150. I think that it is all over the place, which some people love about Dave and some people hate about Dave. About when you when you listen to Edom and Smile, you know, I'm easy is not really a Van Halen kind of track. No. But Arguably, Yankee Rose is. Arguably, Going Crazy is not that far off from where I'll wait and jump were. Oh, it's Beautiful Girls. It's Beautiful Girls. Every time I listen to it, it's Beautiful Girls. I'm totally with you right there. And that's life. I guess, I guess that's in Diver Down territory. You know, every album would kind of have that one offbeat acoustic-y or weird track on Van Halen. So that's not the craziest thing, especially because Eddie and Dave were in that Frank Sinatra, L.A. is my lady music video. I think that was the last thing that they did together before Dave was out. Would you please explain to me who Terry Kilgore is? I have heard that he was Eddie's rival, maybe should have been the Red Ball Jets big guy. Who in the world is Terry Kilgore? If you ask 10 people who Terry Kilgore is, you're going to hear 10 different things, including some of what you said. Dave was one of the people who put it out that Terry was Eddie's guitar rival and that he taught... Eddie had a finger tap, which I don't believe for a second. (laughs) You hear that kind of stuff. And Terry was in and out of the picture a few times. I don't know if it was salary disputes or that just he wasn't necessarily good for what Dave needed at the time. Dave sometimes talks about in interviews how the studio players are not necessarily the touring band because whether they're a good hang or whether they're suitable for the live performance or they have the image, that kind of a thing. So, again, Terry was in and out a few times. Terry was all over your filthy little mouth, but he's on some of the next record DLR band where after Terry there's kind of a revolving door of guitar players. And... Why some of that is the case is a mystery. What I can tell you is uh, Terry is a very, very talented guitar player. I don't know if he gave Dave some of his best work. Uh, I was supposed to talk to Terry for the book. He immediately said yes. Then he had a health problem, and then he sent me an absolute insane person Facebook message. Do you want me me to tell you what it is? Or is that you don't want negative stuff? If you're willing, go ahead. Okay, I think I told this on the Dave and Dave Unchained podcast. And they got one of the only interviews with Terry Kilgore I've ever heard. So look at their stuff if you want to hear uh, Terry. But Terry told me he wasn't doing any interviews because... Greg Renoff interviewed him for his book, and Greg never sent him a copy of his book. Now, 
Really? I'm a big Greg Renoff fan. Me as too. As a person, as an author, as an online presence person, yeah. he should be on Van Halen's payroll as their official historian. I believe that. I have no idea what Greg not sending him a copy of his book has to do with him not talking to me. But I just went, okay, fine. Ugh. Okay. Hey, look. <laughs> You know, we all have to use a little bit of play to get through life, and and that may be it. <laughs> yeah, so so I'm sorry. To answer your real question, he was a talented guitar player that played with Dave. Different disputes as to whether or not he was Eddie's friend or rival or teacher or what it was. I think Dave perpetuated some of that, but he was in Dave's band before Van Halen called Red Ball Jets. Yeah. Yeah, and and it may be that he's going through life shaking his head. What happened? Why not me? And I can understand that. Okay, we need to take our first break, but we'll be back to continue talking with Darren Paltrowitz about his new book, DLR Book, How David Lee Roth Changed the World on Rock School. I see. I always saw them as two bands, and maybe that's just me. When, when you are a monstrous fan of a band, you will live with what's the word I'm looking for? You will you will allow a lot of stuff. It to me yes. always seemed like two bands. I get it. Eddie, Alex, and Mike were in them for the most part, but it was two bands. I never saw it as Van Halen light. It was. It was Van Halen number two. I saw it as a completely different band. Yes or no? I am entirely with you, and we could go down a long list of bands who had a second singer where it really is a different band. And, you know, no more than Van Halen. With ACDC, yes, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson are very different singers and lyrically were very different, but it's... Once you hear Brian Johnson sing a song that Bon Scott pioneered, it's not like it's blasphemy. You go, okay, yeah, sure, cool. He's doing a Bond song. Okay, cool. <laughs> but once you're hearing Hagar sing Panama, it doesn't sound right no. to me, especially with his attitude in that era where he gave the mic to the fan at that first show. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It sounded like a Van Halen cover band. And that really angered me. Yeah, and when I watch bootlegs of, because Dave never put out an official uh, tour recording, even though we know that it exists in some form uh, through Billy Sheen, which I mentioned in the book, but yeah, we when when you hear Steve I playing Unchained and Panama, to me it just sounds awesome. I don't worry about it. In fact, I say that it probably sounded better than when Van Halen was doing it. Let's not go crazy here, Darren. <laughs> but No, I know what you're saying. That's the one thing in terms of Eddie Van Halen, and I really hit this when Eddie passed. There were mm -hmm. people that could create the guitar work that he did 
in a more musical, in a more polished, in a more well-educated method, but nobody could touch Eddie for just pure visceral play. It's like listening to a Frank Zappa solo. There's there's no theory to it. It comes straight from the gut, and if you don't like it, go jump in a lake. <laughs> I'm with you there, but at the same time, in watching some of those Dave mid-'80s solo band bootlegs with Steve Vai, they're playing it a little faster. Dave is known to like stuff faster live, regardless of what the studio album sound like. But I like it faster... Um, I'd have to re-listen to know if it was detuned or down a half step, so it sounded a little heavier. Sometimes I'll take the non-authentic, faster, more energetic version to the original of something that I'm a fan of. The Ramones, I do not feel that way. I hate the Ramones (laughs) playing everything double time, which they started to do sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, where... It used to be, you know, 13 Ramon songs in 29 minutes, and then it became like 13 Ramon songs in 14 minutes. And to me, that's too much. That is, that's like, let's get this over with kind of stuff. But it was a tad bit faster when Dave, you know, uh, Ray Luzier just did this great interview, Dave's drummer for like seven, eight years, something like that, uh, in honor of Alex Van Halen. I was talking about how Dave would have him play Hot for Teacher even faster live. Wow. And sounds cool to me. You know, that one I can get behind. Okay, fair enough. Let's get on to the second album, Skyscraper. Yes. I'm just going to give you my opinion. This, Go for it. to me, because, I mean, I was the person standing in line at Peach's record store. I wanted it the day it came out. And I remember listening to it, and like I said earlier in this interview, there is a star is born type thing. Dave was winning, there's no question, after it was over. And Mm -hmm. then, again, Van Halen kept going up, and Dave kept going down. This, to me, was the beginning of the downward slide, and this is why I think it is keyboard-centric, However, Ed seemed to be able to pull off the keyboard. Dave did not. Am I right or wrong? Blanket statement. I don't think (laughs) the keyboard is the issue for Dave pulling off because I think that just like Paradise is one of the greatest songs of all time. It holds up, even if it's dated 80s production with the keyboard bass and the drum machine, Despite that, I just think it's one of the greatest songs ever done and doesn't get enough credit for how great of a song it is. Yeah. So that song is great. The title track, Skyscraper, I like it, but it's not Dave's best. Stand Up, I like it, not one of Dave's best. So the thing is, you have something so ingenious, like just like Paradise, that is entirely keyboardy, except for the guitar lick and solo and all that so it's kind of like it depends on the song with dave just like with with van halen i love i'll wait i think it is one of their greatest songs i never get tired of that song there's actual emotion in that song even if we've since learned that the lyrics are gibberish because there's 
you know, three different stories about what the lyrics mean. Right. <laughs> At this point, Ted Templeman remembers it differently than Dave, who remembers it different than Don Landy, who, et cetera. But I think that it's a case-by-case basis. I love some of the keyboard stuff in Van Hagar. I hate some of the keyboard stuff in Van Hagar. So I'm more of a song person than a technique person. If I were a technique person, I would love every Ingve Malmsteen album more than Van Halen, but I'm not, you know? I love Alcatraz. I love what he does in Alcatraz. Yeah. But uh, once you take away the songs, it's uh, boring. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to make that trip with you. The, the lyrical differences between Sammy and Dave... The way it was explained to me one time by a student, and I thought this was funny, he listen, He said, I've listened to both, I love both, but when it was all said and done, I thought Dave could win a bar fight and Sammy couldn't. And I thought, I don't know what that means, but I agree with you. Oh, that's, that's an interesting point. You know, I'm actually going to say the exact opposite. Oh, no! In real life, <laughs> in real life because uh, I think Sammy did do some boxing and Sammy does that uh, that lame stage move that's kind of like the uh, the the King Hippo punch or Mike Tyson's punch out. Sure. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, like I he, do. He, yeah. He's like you circle your fists. He he regularly does that move. Whereas Dave, for all the karate kicks and martial arts training, people who know him told me he's super clumsy. Like he can do what? those moves, but he'll likely trip over himself. Oh, I- God. Hey, look, half, what is, I say half, it's probably two thirds is a show. But, yes. you know, I get it. Two thirds is a show. But if you watch the uh, jump video, Dave's leg goes behind his head and behind his arm. That's on tape, man. That's on tape. So, but that has nothing to do with toughness. That's true. <laughs> Flexibility is usually not in the tough vernacular. I agree. Uh, I, I think that um, that's a very good point, though, in terms of believability, because you could rag on some of Dave's lyrics, like Hot Dog and a Shake. You could rag on that. and At the same time, you could rag on Sammy Hagar up for breakfast as being one of the worst Van Halen lyrics ever. Thank you. Thank you. adored the album Your Filthy Little Mouth. I get it. Nile Rodgers produced it. I get it. It didn't do very well. I still love the album. It just wasn't commercially successful. But I don't. <laughs> say it again? I, I don't. It, it you is don't like it? It's not a consistent album oh, at all. I love it. I adore okay. that album. I applaud Dave for taking chances for 
wanting to evolve, for knowing, okay, um, I'm an older artist, I should be a little more mature. In his mind, okay, grunge killed Van Halen, so I have no career, let me do something artistic. I get that. But at the same time, you know, no big king, what is that? Oh, the only thing the rich have ever proven is they are to life what American Bandstand is to the theory of evolution. Come on! That's poetry, <laughs> man! Uh, that reggae song, and then his song with Travis Tritt, so he's doing country. No, I don't like that. And then the Willie Nelson cover, which is almost like lounge <laughs> country. Uh. But then She's My Machine, which is supposedly a leftover from a little lane enough. It's just way too all over the place. And supposedly the song that was on the Rhino Records Best Of called Don't Piss Me Off, supposedly that's a leftover from Your Filthy Little Mouth. So I just don't know what he was thinking. When he was doing press on A Little Ain't Enough, he did say in one or two interviews I saw that his next album was going to be a blues album. So if he was trying to make a blues album, then I don't understand No Big Ting. Yeah. And I don't understand, you know, Nightlife and things like that. It, it seems like maybe Warner Brothers either A&R'd it a little bit in a bad way and or Dave had too much freedom. It, it, entirely possible. Um, yeah. Well, hey, look, that's why there's chocolate and vanilla ice cream. I like... You don't. Life goes forward. Time for the second break. We need to give our affiliates the ability to pay their bills, but we'll be back talking with Darren Paltrowitz about DLR Book, how David Lee Roth changed the world on Rock School. The Vegas Residency. I don't know if you know this about me, but I learned web design when I was in Ph.D. school. And mm -hmm. I think it was the middle of my third semester. I got a contact from David Lee Roth's manager because I had a David Lee Roth fan page. So for a very short time, I held the original David Lee Roth website when he was dealing with the Mambo Slammers. Now, look, it only lasted a couple of months, but I have a, a DLR uh, poster from the Mambo Slammers. I've got a, 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 why can't I come up with it? A Zippo. I've got some DLR original art that he sent me. The thing, I know, huh? The thing about the Mambo Slammers, which drives me crazy, is Dave, it was so easy to make fun of him at the time, but... Brian Setzer gets so much credit for re-emerging big band, but yes. Dave did it first, didn't he? Not only did Dave do it first. Now, Brian Setzer, I respect to no end as a Long Island person. I love the Stray Cats and all that. But Brian Setzer's whole career was revitalized off of that cover of Jump, Jive, and Whale. Right. Now, I didn't put this in the book, but isn't I'm Easy by Dave Lee Roth kind of the template for Jump, Jive, and Whale? Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Sheesh. Yeah. And, and plus, it, there were Stray Cats people around the scene of 
of David Lee Roth and Van Halen. Yeah. So it's not like Brian Setzer was the first vintage person ever or that he was an island or anything like that. Yeah. I oh I agree. Hey look But, but I'm sorry, let's let's go back to you for a second there. Sure. That Mambo Slammer stuff is so rare. Yes. Absolutely rare. So going through your timeline here, you had the official site you said for a couple of months or, you know, an officially recognized site. Yes. So did it basically go from you to that slaughterhouse team? That I can't tell you. I'm not sure. I do know that I had probably 10 phone calls with the guy who was managing Dave at the time. And I wish I could tell you his name. I don't know. But Eddie. It, yes. It wasn't Eddie? Yes, it was. Oh, Eddie Anderson? Yes. And Wow, okay, it, yeah, because Eddie Anderson handled him until maybe 98 when they had some uh, business-related disagreements. Then it went to Kieran, who eventually sued Dave and was around for a while. Then it went to Matt Sencio. <laughs> then there was another betweener person or two and then now it's been with jerry for i don't know five seven right. years something like that yeah i i what what was so shocking to me because you got to understand i'm a graduate student uh, or a graduate yeah. assistant what they called grad asses at the time <laughs> i'm in bowling green ohio at bgsu and i'm keeping this on a a, a gateway you know, desktop and angel he, fire. Oh yeah. Geo-cities. Oh, he, <laughs> <laughs> he called me and said, you know, I've printed it all out. I've got it all laid out on the bed and Dave is looking at it and I'm just freaking the heck out. He yeah. called me and he said, now we need to expand this out. And I said to him, look, next semester, I need to go into my dissertation. And I walked away and I know that makes people go, you're you you're an idiot and I wasn't getting paid. I received I, I received Dave's stuff. So yeah, that's that's where it began and ended. It was it was literally a semester's worth, but that's my connection to the man. That is incredible. Now most people are gonna say what what your friends or supposed friends said that oh my god you missed it i'm gonna say you dodged a bullet because <laughs> dave as it talks about in this book the slaughterhouse s-l-a-w slaughterhouse guys who basically were overseeing davidleeroth.com and all that ultimately they it went to court because I don't think he liked how much he was being charged. And you go, well, how much was he being charged? Dave, in 1997, I believe, put out an exclusive internet single. It's the song, I believe, and I keep using the words, I believe, and I, I apologize, but I don't want to say for fact, I believe it was the song that Howard Stern turned down for the private part soundtrack. And Dave was also doing this Dave TV radio stuff that was... Uh, so it was kind of a mix of studio promos, him DJing, leftovers from the Crazy Heat, Crazy from the Heat book, talked into a tape recorder, extended versions of that stuff, and then him just putting on songs from the 80s and whatnot that he liked, other people's music. And back in those days, people didn't have an understanding for what bandwidth costs were. Right. 
Yeah. So you can imagine he one day, uh, and I'm making up a number or an event here. This did not happen. But you can imagine he one day, like, do, 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 comes home. It's like, Mm. $39,000? And they go, well, yeah, Dave. They downloaded the MP3 of your song 50,000 times, and they streamed the Dave TV thing this many times. And by the way, you're paying us eight grand a month. So so it's like $47,000. A lot. Adam Carolla talked about that in the early days of his podcast, that he hit the wall when he found out how much the hosting costs and the data transfer costs were. He had no idea. About any of that. Opie and Anthony also talked about that with Foundry Radio that they went, wait, wait, just all the stuff that we've been streaming costs money? Yeah. You have to imagine that happened. So you would have been on the recipient's end of that all, Joe. No, thank you. So I blow through the book in about three hours and I find things to talk about. Yeah. I, I read it note for note, Darren. It's a rock star. DLR book. I, I can't compliment you enough on it. Joe, that means the world. Uh, I, I think that this is the kind of book that if you're a Van Halen diehard, you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. If you hate it, it's probably because you want to believe all the stories you've heard hundreds of times. But as a private investigator, I had to use my skill set to track down people and obtain governmental uh, documents and get people to speak off the record who were otherwise silenced by NDAs. So if you're open to a different kind of truth, oh boy, I see what I did there. If you're (laughs) open to something like that, I think you're really going to enjoy the book. So, look, I'm going to play with your, I think it was either your last or your second to last chapter. Go ahead and sum it up for me. What is Dave's legacy? Oh, man, there's there's two answers to that. Because on the surface, you can go greatest or one of the top three front men in, of all time in rock. Yes. Uh singer of one of the greatest rock bands and most commercially successful rock bands ever whose music should stand the test of time. He was singing with the Mozart of guitar and you know pioneer of MTV which absolutely changed the world hence the subtitle of the book. The other answer is if you look at the way that Van Halen has been handling its business for the last decade and change with not updating its website very well not giving the fans what's in the archives not telling the fans what's in its archives not doing much press about anything etc not having new t-shirts aside from what van halen news desk puts out the unofficial site if you look at it that way they are going to be as as historic as credence clearwater revival or grand funk railroad you know two bands who's infighting just diminished how popular they were when they were alive yeah i i agree sometimes i have to explain it to people and my statement is well you weren't around to see it it's like yeah yeah yeah. unfortunately that's where things look to be heading unless they get a greg renoff or 
an Irving Azoff to that is allowed to do their job as opposed to an Irving Azoff who just negotiates deals. <laughs> <laughs> which may be an entire other book. When you write it, you call me, okay? Hey, Joe, you know, the people like you let books like this happen. So Absolutely. We're fighting the good fight in terms of journalism, radio, and rock. Yep. DLR book, Darren Paltrowitz. I can't tell you how happy I am that I talked to you. And I don't mean to cut you off, but we've been talking for an hour, and the show's only 59 minutes, so I'm going to have to edit you anyway, brother. So, it, hey, look, I'll, I'll finish the way you finish the book. Thanks for coming. 1-800-SEE-YA. <laughs> you read that book. <laughs> yes, I did. I read it. I'm going to tell you. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for everything, Joe. 